Good evening, welcome to Navarro Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. This evening, I am joined by the OG, the master to my apprentice, Michael Walker. Michael, how are you? Uh, very well, a pleasure to be joining you. I always liked that film. I thought it was underrated, The Apprentice on Disney. I feel like Mickey Mouse in those long robes. Tonight, we're talking about Jeremy Hunt, uh, Ofcom assessing the situation with serving MPs presenting their own TV shows, and Nadine Dorry's theory on why she will never be a Baroness. First story. The independent inquiry into COVID-19 has today begun its public hearings. It's the second stage of the inquiry, the stage where its chair, Heather Hallett, will take evidence from various participants in the handling of the pandemic, as well as those affected by it. Now, the scope of the inquiry is enormous, and it's expected to run until at least 2026. And that's because the UK had one of the highest COVID death tolls in the world, with 220,000 people dying. Included within its scope is also long COVID, with an estimated 2 million Britons reporting symptoms. 55,000 documents have already been submitted by the government, and up to 1,000 witnesses may be called, including at least three prime ministers of the past, NHS frontline workers, and representatives of the bereaved. Now, the aim of the exercise, which is set to cost over £100 million, is to learn lessons for the handling of future pandemics. But, according to Hallett, it's also to provide a venue to, quote, commemorate the hardship and loss that so many people in the UK suffered. Opening the proceedings, Hallett put those losses front and centre. As people arrived at the hearing centre today, they found a dignified vigil of bereaved family members holding photographs of their loved ones. Their grief was obvious to all. It is on their behalf and on behalf of the millions who suffered and continue to suffer in different ways as a result of the pandemic that I intend to answer the following three questions. Was the UK properly prepared for a pandemic? Was the response to it appropriate? And can we learn lessons for the future? Hallett has structured this stage of the inquiry into four modules. Resilience and preparedness, decision-making by the government, the impact of COVID on the health system, and vaccines. These hearings are opening the first module, which is resilience and preparedness. Lead counsel for the inquiry, Hugo Keith KC, laid out what would be examined. On the 3rd of March, the DHSE, the Scottish Government, the Welsh Government, and the Department of Health in Northern Ireland published a coronavirus COVID-19 action plan, setting out how they plan to tackle the coronavirus outbreak. Based on the experience of dealing with other infectious diseases and the influenza pandemic preparedness work that had been carried out, the plan stated that the United Kingdom was well prepared to respond in a way that offered substantial protection to the public. Whether that was actually the case will be examined in Module 1. And of course, that is why Module 1, in terms of preparedness, in terms of the response that was expected, that is the focus of, of your examination. And even at this stage, before hearing the evidence, it is apparent that we might not have been very well prepared at all. And that modular structure is important because the inquiry will be issuing interim reports at each module 
and its termination. So for ministers and officials hoping that accountability will be kicked into the long grass, tough luck. Uh, the one they'll be worrying about the most will be the decision-making by government module, and that won't open until autumn. The government has so far had a pretty interesting relationship with the independent inquiry that it set up to say the least. For example, the Cabinet Office is currently taking the inquiry to court to try to stop it from accessing certain unredacted documents, most notably, of course, Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages from the pandemic period. This morning, former Health Minister Jim Bethel appeared on Sky News, where he made a different complaint, and I need to repeat this, about an independent inquiry his own government set up. Not due to conclude until 2026. That's too long. It's, it is far too long. The, the Desire to answer the concerns of families is entirely right, but there are practical matters about preparing this country for what is likely to be another pandemic sometime in the future. That work should be done today, and it's taking far too long to learn the practical lessons of the mistakes that we made uh, the first time around. And do you think the length of this inquiry is going to delay um, our planning for a future pandemic? And it already has done. Uh, we have gone backwards rather than forwards in being uh, ready for any future pandemic. We have taken our testing uh, facilities and infrastructure down. Uh, our surveillance is, isn't good enough. And I saw John Edmonds uh, talking about this uh, last week. Uh, we uh, do not have a good pandemic plan in place. Uh, UXA is not strong enough or tough enough uh, in order to have influence in Whitehall. We really should be leaning into this issue much, much more heavily. Did I just hear that right? The length of the inquiry made the government take down its testing facilities. Of course, a shorter inquiry might mean fewer pesky questions about what the government was doing in the peak COVID years. One piece of striking testimony about the UK's pandemic preparedness came from Brian Stanton. He was representing the British Medical Association. Commenting on the wholly inadequate supply of, of PPE, a GP in Northern Ireland said, open quote, we were sent six pairs of gloves and six aprons in an envelope approximately three weeks after the start of lockdown. Close quote. And a doctor in England recalled how they, open quote, made our own and bought our own when we could find any. We depended on friends sourcing FFP3 masks and my son's school 3D printing visors. Close quote. These failures of planning and preparation also led to PPE being procured from, from organisations with no experience of manufacturing PPE, resulting in PPE being produced and delivered that was unsuitable for use at huge public expense. It also led to the ludicrous spectacle of doctors making aprons from bin liners because they were sturdier than the PPE equipment provided. Michael, what's your read on this? Given the nature of the inquiry and the, the depth of the coverage, are we going to be hearing a lot more stories like that over the coming months and years? Yes. I mean, uh, that seems to me to be the, what's quite good about public inquiries in this country. I was speaking to Peter Apps about the, the Grenfell inquiry, and you had lots of the same discussions there. That it was taking too long and that it was too long for you know the people who had been bereaved by the Grenfell tragedy to to hear the answers for it all to be published. But what he told me, he, he's written a great book on Grenfell, so I've sort of followed all the inquiries, that it has, it does feel like it's got to the truth, essentially. And that's because they they are very powerful. They can legally require people to give over evidence. You can commit perjury if you lie to them. So this isn't just, you know, a, a, another interview where sort of Boris Johnson is going to be able to waffle and whatnot. It's a bit like appearing in court. So we should 
get some really substantial conclusions from this. It will take a while, yes, but the idea that the government can't prepare for a pandemic before this inquiry publishes its report is just completely bizarre. If you're saying we've gone backwards and we've gone backwards because we haven't yet got the outcome of a public inquiry, why the hell would you go backwards before finding out the outcome of a public inquiry? Yes, the, the full value of the inquiry will only be if some of its conclusions are integrated into a future pandemic plan. But that doesn't mean you can't make a pandemic plan now. And I think what we have seen with this government is that you know the moment they were able to stop thinking about COVID-19, they thought, oh, thank God we can stop thinking about this now. So there were a lot of lessons that it felt like we learned as a society, which we're now going completely back on. Now, in many senses, that's how one would deal with, with a pandemic. So would we close the borders more quickly? Would we have better surveillance? Would we want to have the ability to manu- manufacture vaccines more quickly? Now, all of those things are very important questions. It was very notable that almost immediately, sort of after the height of the pandemic, the government dumped plans to have a vaccine manufacturing facility in the UK, a really big, important one, um, which would have meant that we wouldn't be sort of pressuring um, factories in India to send us their vaccines instead of making our own. So uh, there are lots of easy wins the government could have done that they haven't. I think there are also, though, sort of broader social questions about what we, what it seemed like we all had learned at the start of the pandemic. You don't really need an inquiry to tell us this. You know, you saw Boris Johnson all the time saying, um, what this has shown us is that frontline workers matter, essential workers matter. We're going to clap for carers. We were essentially making a pledge to them to say, we we listen to you. We recognize you're going to have a terrible two years ahead of you. It's going to be very, very scary. But the one thing you can be sure of, sure of sorry, is we're never going to undervalue again. And we've already undervalued all of these people because we try and demonize them anytime they ask for anything other than a pay cut. So there are so many things that the government could be doing right now, which would be learning lessons from the pandemic. Now that can happen alongside a public inquiry, which is I mean, I, I suppose the importance of it is to have a bit of a definitive account of what happened. And, you know, I, I imagine there there are some critiques of public inquiries that they don't necessarily come to a definitive truth. But I mean, from the people I have spoke to about the various public inquiries we've had in this country, there does seem to be a general agreement and acceptance that they they do actually uncover quite a lot and give a fairly definitive account of what had happened. I suppose the problem is if it's so long and it comes out so far after the event, um, does that somewhat dilute its conclusions, mere, but sort of by by the mere fact of it of the distance from what it's talking about? Hundred million pounds, Michael. I mean, crikey! If we don't get those Boris Johnson WhatsApps, I think people are going to be disappointed, aren't they? Is there is there a sort of is there a, an inquiry in in living history, recent history, where a similar amount of money has been spent, for instance, in the aftermath of Iraq, or is this new in terms of scale and extent? Well, no, I mean, it seems like they are often cost a lot of money. I was just looking at this today. The Bloody Sunday inquiry costs £200 million. So the idea that an inquiry would cost a lot of money um, is, isn't new. I mean, people have said this, this will be the broadest inquiry in British history because you know, the pandemic was such an extraordinary event that affected so many people. But I think the, the idea that, you, that they last so long and you need so much legal advice and like lawyers charge quite a lot of money. Um, so I think that they always rack up very big bills. and you know, there's a political decision that that's worth it. I mean, in a way, it's admirable that they're they're willing to pay all this money for for lawyers to scrutinise what they've done. I mean, often they're set up a, a, a bit sort of longer after the event, so that if there are strong criticisms of a government, the government can be like, well, it wasn't ours anyway, um, so they can say an apology afterwards and sort of move on. But this one, 
you know, maybe they announced it to to kick some of those issues into the long grass and they can say, oh, wait for the inquiry. And then when the inquiry publishes, they won't be in frontline politics anyway. But investment into a sort of system which is to try and with real legal force uncover exactly what happened, I think is is probably something to be celebrated, to be honest. Important to say that module two, which will feature Boris Johnson probably quite heavily, uh, will be in the autumn. Of course, we'll be covering that no end. Michael Walker, the COVID goat, will be front and centre of our coverage, I'm sure. And next story. UK wages have just risen at their fastest rate in 20 years outside of the pandemic. Figures from the Office for National Statistics show that average weekly earnings, excluding bonuses, rose from 6.7% to 7.2% in the three months to April. Forecasts expected a rise around 6.9%. This stronger wage growth was widely expected, given a sizable increase to the minimum wage in April, around 10%. But it's important to remember that real wage growth, which is what your wages can buy, was still negative due to double-digit inflation. So basically, we are getting poorer still, most of us anyway, just not as badly as we thought we would. Now, you would think this is good news. Wage increases that are keeping, at least within touching distance of runaway prices, must be positive. And after all, when the IMF upgraded their forecast to the UK economy last month, they credited rising wages as the reason we would not be entering a recession. So to recap, avoiding recession and better wages. Isn't that meant to be what politicians and the Bank of England care about? Well, hold your horses. Because wage rises means that many are concerned inflation will remain high, and as a result, interest rates will have to keep on going up. The Financial Times have this quote from Yale Selfin, chief economist at KPMG, who says this, If there was still any doubt about the direction of monetary policy, these data should solidify another interest rate increase from the Bank of England next week, and probably more in the coming months. The FT add this, Markets expect the BOE, that's the Bank of England's interest rate, to rise from the current 4.5% to 5.5% by the end of this year, pushing up borrowing costs for the government and mortgage holders for whom fixed rate deals have been withdrawn by lenders. Samuel Toombs, chief UK economist at the consultancy Pantheon Macroeconomics, said wage growth had, quote, far too much momentum for the Monetary Policy Committee to stop raising rates. Elsewhere, the FT also mentions the number of people in employment rose to a record high, Michael, better than expected growth, better than expected wage rises and full employment. So explain to me, while the doom and gloom. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, uh, another statistic I saw today is that wages, real wages, because obviously we're talking about nominal wages here, are no higher than they were in 2005, right? So it is unheard of in modern British history to have wages stagnate for such a long period of time. So I hadn't even started university by then. And, and, and wages were actually, yeah, average wages were higher when I started university than they are now, aged 33, right? So, so the big story when it comes to the UK economy is wages are low. Historically, this is, this is a terrible situation we find ourselves in when it comes to how much people are being paid. The problem, though, that we, we're hearing about from the Bank of England and the markets is they want them to be even lower. And so what's going on there? Well, it seems to me that Everyone is so worried about the housing market that they're willing to sacrifice workers on to, to defend it, right? So because we've had low interest rates for such a long period of time, which has been enabled by sort of low and stagnating wages, that has meant that property prices, especially with, with house prices, have managed to go up. 
to extraordinary levels. Houses, I think, are massively overvalued, essentially. And that means that we rely on having very, very low interest rates to not have a crisis. Why? Because if you've spent you know, half a million pounds on a three-bedroom flat, if you bought that on a fixed mortgage when it was 1%, um, then you might be able to pay those extraordinary, the monthly cost for that extraordinary um, total cost. Um, if interest rates go up to 5%, which is historically very normal, but the, the price of the flat you've bought is not historically normal. So it used to cost 100 grand. Now it costs 500 grand. Just that little rise in interest rates could cause an economic crash, right? And so we're in this stupid situation where because we have centered the interests of asset holders over the interests of people who work for a living, um, we are actively trying to suppress people's wages so that people can continue to pay for their overvalued homes. And it just does seem like a completely bizarre way to run an economy. And I think the proof is in the pudding, as you said, that we are, we're, we're looking at wages increasing nominally by a surprising amount um, and saying we want them to be lower, even though if we look at the real value of wages, they are lower than they were 20 years ago. This is a really key point, Michael, because like you say, most wages are lagging behind inflation. So in real terms, people are still getting poorer. But I should add that many of the occupations with the largest wage rises, and this is something we're not talking about, which are outperforming inflation, are those which don't need a university degree. So pay rises are accelerating fast inflation for jobs like pub bartenders, where wages rose 11.3% in the last year. Little recently gave their staff a 13% pay rise. Broadly depends if you work in or outside of London, but around 13%. And it's the same story for truck drivers. Their pay is as much as 30% higher compared to 2019. If you're a newly qualified HGV driver today, you're earning between 30 and 40,000 pounds a year. What I don't understand, Michael, is why aren't people saying this is welcome? Or maybe, you know, maybe these are just the kinds of people who haven't really been in the political conversation in this country for long enough. You know, people, you're talking about depressed wages haven't really gone up since 2005. If you're looking at people in this country who don't have a university education, whose education really finishes with schooling at 16 or 18, their real wages, what they can buy, has barely moved since the 1970s. In fact, it's gone down in the United States. It's significantly lower, but it's barely moved in this country. And an ancillary point to that, Michael, is the two things that matter most, the two biggest investments in your life, what are they? A house and an education. And they have become immeasurably more expensive for everybody, but particularly, of course, working class people. And you look at these two things in combination, and of course, this is terrible news, Michael, but there is something really positive here, which is HGV drivers are earning more money, pub bartenders are earning more money, welders are earning more money. And yet this isn't really in the conversation. Why is that? I think it's probably because for a number of reasons, it doesn't quite serve anyone in the political establishment's interest to talk about it. And this is for a number of reasons. So one, the conservatives don't want to talk about it because essentially if they talked about how much HGV drivers were, were getting paid or supermarket workers or, or bartenders. Now, I don't want to say how much they're getting paid because they're obviously not getting paid, you know, extraordinarily obscene amounts, but their their wages have gone up, as you've said, um, in, in, in recent years. And if they were to sort of highlight that and celebrate that, then it'd be very difficult for them to say, but you nurses, you doctors, you have to say, accept real-term pay cuts. So even though they could have a good story to tell in these sectors, they're not willing to tell it because it would mean that there would be demands on them, you know, what I think are very righteous demands on them to increase public sector pay. So I think that's why the Tories aren't talking about it. I think why other elements of the political establishment aren't talking about it is because it probably does have something to do with Brexit, right? So I think Brexit, on the whole, if you look at its effect on the entire economy, 
yeah, it probably has, I mean, potentially to quite a significant degree, sort of suppressed growth. But there will be certain sectors, and particularly one would imagine sectors where people don't have a university education, where that has created some labour shortages. So bartendering, that was a job that many young EU migrants um, once did. Driving trucks, that was an industry which was incredibly integrated with the rest of the European Union. So it wouldn't even be that people moved here to become truck drivers. It'd be truck drivers would just move throughout Europe in a very, very, um, I suppose, it was an obvious sort of example of the single market where he's just moving from country to country as if there were no no borders. So these are areas where I think probably Brexit has a lot to do with why wages are increasing in these particular industries. The Remain establishment probably don't want to admit that because it was an argument from the Leavers that they said was wrong. But then the Leavers, who are so integrated in the Conservative Party, don't want to say that because then they might have to pay uh, or they might, there might be a demand for them to pay nurses and, and care workers more. I think this also points to sort of the contradictory elite alliance which was behind Brexit. So the popular backing for Brexit, yeah, there was some xenophobia in there that was very significant, but also there was a bit of an anti-neoliberal movement. You know, these were people who were socially conservative and economically quite left-wing, um, but the leadership of the Leave campaign weren't those things. So the leadership of the Leave campaign actually wanted sort of neoliberalism on steroids and were willing to get votes for Brexit by playing into anti-immigrant sentiment. And now we have had, you know, the odd social democratic consequence of Brexit and they don't want to embrace it because they're not social democrats. One more thing before we move on to our next story. In terms of these pay rises, presently you're seeing private sector get about 2% more than the public sector. So next time somebody says, striking teachers and rail workers, the reason why inflation is happening couldn't be further from the truth. Sticking with the economy, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has announced a review into the public sector and its efficiency or lack of. It will look at spending across all government departments and reports in the autumn on areas for potential productivity growth. Hunt made the announcement in a speech to the Centre for Policy Studies. He said this, to keep up with projected spending pressures that would mean increasing annual tax revenues by £200 billion by 2071 in today's money, or at least doubling the basic rate of tax and main rate of employee national insurance. You don't need brilliant treasury analysts to tell you the consequence of a state growing faster than the economy. Higher borrowing, higher taxes, or a combination of the two. The Times also reported this about his speech. However, Hunt claimed that if the public sector could increase its productivity by 0.5% a year, just 0.5% a year, sounds so easy, this would stabilise the proportion of GDP being consumed by the state and allow the proceeds of wider economic growth to go on reducing, guess what, taxation. Quotes, if we replicate productivity growth in the private sector, it would mean increasing tax revenues without increasing tax rates, and it would put us on a sustainable path to lower taxes, he said. Now, I wanted to cover this arguably esoteric point, because it's hugely important about what's being missed here. And that is the public sector cannot be as efficient as the private sector, ever. It's impossible. Why? Because things like education and healthcare are more labour intensive. They're less capital intensive than things like manufacturing cars or processing food. We've known this for a very long time, and I suspect Jeremy Hunt knows it too. But rather than say that and have a sensible conversation around productivity, specifically in the public sector, misunderstanding around this allows right-wing parties to bash public services. Why can't they be like private firms? See, they're inherently wasteful and inferior. We need more outsourcing. 
And all of this is before mentioning the fact we have an aging population. So the idea we will spend less on social care a half century from now is absurd. Michael, Jeremy Hunt is really playing to the gallery on this one, isn't he? Yeah, it's called Baumol's cost disease. I imagine you've probably learned that in one of your degrees as well. So the idea that any industry which is necessarily labor intensive will necessarily get more and more expensive over time. It gets more and more expensive because prices are all relative. And if you have sectors whereby you can increase productivity dramatically, so if you say massively reduce the cost of flat screen TVs, which say we have done, um, then you will have to pay teachers ever more flat screen TVs um, to be, or the, the value of ever more flat screen TVs to do their job. So this idea that you can have productivity gains in the public sector in the same way you can in the private sector, as you say, completely wrong. And we will have to have a grown-up conversation about the fact that those industries in the public sector or those services in the public sector will not have the same productivity gains you get in the private sector because you don't want your carer to be automated, right? One, it's very difficult to do. We don't yet have robots that can wipe people's asses or visit people and change their sheets. But also, even if we did, the key part or a key part of that job, of that service, is providing human-to-human -human contact. So, yes, potentially, there probably are actually in, in education some sort of productivity gains we could make whereby you, you, you use technology in a smart way. But you definitely don't want to reduce the staff-to-student ratios in schools because it is that human-to-human -human contact which is so important. Now, I would potentially say, you know, I would massively increase the staff-to-student ratios in schools as someone who's worked in a school. But if you could use technology in a, in a smart way which gave teachers a bit more time to have a more sort of caring relationship with teachers, obviously, teach, with, with students, sorry. Obviously, teachers massively care for their students, but it's a very, very time-demanding job. So it's quite difficult to find... Um, the time to do those sort of extra things that might really make a difference to, to children as individuals. Maybe we can use technology to do that. But the idea that we're going to make public services cheaper and therefore not have to increase taxes is just for the birds. If we want to have high quality public services, we're going to have to spend an ever increasing share of GDP on it because you won't have the productivity gains in the public sector that you do in the private sector. See, this is Michael Walker. This is an LSE degree versus an Oxford one, right? The real savvy public policy people go to the London School of Economics Michael Walker, I'm very happy you're with us at Navarra Media and not working as some dog's body for Jeremy Hunt. Next story. Conspiracy theories are on the rise. That's what you read, watch and hear if you pay attention to legacy media. And it's fair to say they certainly seem more prominent in a political setting. It's one thing to believe the US government has alien spacecraft at Roswell. It's another to think that your local district council is part of a global conspiracy to keep you locked within a 15-minute community. But the debate about precisely how many people believe in conspiracies has often been very abstract. And let's be frank, people use the label to discredit their rivals. Joe Biden calls Trump a conspiracy theorist over COVID. Trump calls Biden and the Democrats the same regarding uh, an obsession, frankly, with Kremlin rigging elections. But now we're apparently having some meat on the bones when it comes to precisely how many people in the UK believe certain conspiracy theories. That's because new research has been commissioned by BBC Radio 4 in collaboration with the Policy Institute, who are based at King's College Universities. Here's the tweet thread from the Policy Institute summing up the work. The Great Replacement Theory and Conspiracies, About 15-Minute Cities, The Cost of Living Crisis, Digital Currencies and COVID are believed by as many as one in three in the UK. 
Belief in such conspiracies is far higher among those who get much of their information from alternative media sources. For example, around two-thirds of those who get much of their news from certain outlets say they believe, quote, the great replacement theory. Naughty you need to get your news from uh, the TV. The survey also highlights potential real-world impacts of misinformation, with up to one in four people saying they have either taken part in or would or would be prepared, rather, to take part in direct action on issues often linked to conspiracy theories. That thread goes on. I'll return to the substance of those findings in a moment. But before I do that, let's look quickly at how this has been covered in the media. This is the headline The Guardian went with. Quarter in UK believe COVID was a hoax. Poll on conspiracy theories finds. Elsewhere in that article, there's a really helpful table of all their findings, kind of like those tweets, all just condensed. Uh, you can see here a range of conspiracy theories covered by the study. And according to this groundbreaking study by King's College, I think Savanta are involved as well. Around a third of people believe in things like the Great Reset Theory and the Great Replacement Theory. Meanwhile, 20% of the public don't know, maybe don't care. So we're basically looking at an even split on whether or not the government is trying to actively replace white people in this country with brown and black people. That's what the Great Replacement is all about. Obviously, that is deeply concerning. But, and it's a big but, I looked a little deeper at the methodology here and things aren't quite what they seem. And that's because the sample of people being asked these questions includes individuals who've never previously heard of these conspiracy theories. So, in trying to cover dangerous conspiracy theories, researchers from BBC Verify went around telling people about dangerous conspiracy theories. Here's a graphic from the original report. Now, I want you to look closely here. Under that first image at the top, it says the base was 712 adults. That was their sample. But where did they first hear about this conspiracy theory? Well, that's the graphic below. And as you can see, the sample is 391 adults who've heard or read information about the Great Reset. So somewhere we've lost 321 respondents. How? Now, sure, some just won't remember. Maybe that's the other 12% in the second graph because all those figures only add up to 88%. Though it should be said, don't remember or don't know should clearly be included. But it also seems likely that many people are being polled on a conspiracy theory they haven't even heard about until they were asked about it. Surely, you should only include views on conspiracy theories from a sample of people who've previously heard of them. Conspiracy theories exist, and they're very likely believed by more and more people. But what seems to have happened here is a robust approach with regards to the research has come second in trying to grab headlines. And then there was this claim, which is just ludicrous, frankly. So according to this report, one in seven adults in the UK have heard of a newspaper called The Light. That's around 7.8 million people. Remember, this is over 18s. Meanwhile, 4.8 million people have read it, and just under 4 million people have helped to distribute it. More bizarrely still, if this data is correct and representative, apparently over 3 million people are subscribers to The Light. I don't know how that works since this is a free newspaper, but I guess that's immaterial. Michael, if this data is correct, The Light is... More successful, has a broader readership than The Times, The Telegraph, the FT put together. What do you make of Britain's most popular newspaper? And how come I've never heard of it? Uh, I've been distributing it uh, outside of your purview, Aaron, because I know you don't like me to promote alternative sources of media to Navarra Media. Um, no, I mean, this, this does seem like a... I mean, this study seems ridiculous. I mean, uh, that example in particular, 
it, I suppose, I, I think there is a trend in journalism. One of them is about disinformation, which I think is self-serving to a degree. I also think it's interesting. So I was speaking to um, someone the other day who was working for so a, a, a sort of increasing amount of journalism, especially sort of investigative journalism, journalism which thinks of itself as investigative, is funded by third parties. So you get, often it's George Soros or these various liberal foundations that fund people to research certain things and then feed those stories to newspapers, so in collaboration. Now, I don't think this is dark nor sinister. It's often into important stuff. Climate change There's a recognition that it is difficult for newspapers to fund themselves now. There are people with lots of money um, who have you know, often liberal proclivities and, and they think we want to help um, the truth come out about climate change, whatever, fine. But I was speaking to someone who worked for one of these the other day and they was talking about the, f- the five things that are going to sort of shape humanity for the next 10 years, whatever. It's sort of like oligarchy. So again, um, and disinformation is often one of them. And it is, it's a topic which just rich people are very happy for us to talk about because it is, it's a threat to the status quo. Now, I, don't, I think it is, a, you know, I think disinformation matters. I think there are a lot of wacky conspiracy theories out there that will have an effect on elections. And I think potentially in many ways they are unhealthy to the body politic. But at the same time, the focus on it to me seems somewhat self-serving both by media organizations, but also by the people funding it. Because it's to say that the threat to society as it stands is that the, the gatekeeping that the elites once had is now being undermined. The other trend I think here is that so much journalism now just involves polling. It's very easy to get a headline by doing a poll and polling is relatively cheap, right? And so you have one in four people believe this, one in three people believe that. Now, if you're asking them about political parties, I think they tend to be you know, somewhat accurate because people have heard of them. I think you ask people about pretty much anything else and the margins of error are going to be gigantic, as you've sort of proved essentially with the light, because there aren't 3 million people that subscribe to it and there aren't almost that many people who who, who give it out. So obviously the margin of error is huge there um, because I imagine that you know less than 10,000 people probably give it out, right? So so I think lots of people just, yes, no. You know, often you get some, you, you might get prize money for like answering these these things or you're just clicking on the, the internet. The, the idea that this is sort of like useful investigative journalism, asking people, do they believe this or that? seems lazy to me. Our brave efforts to find the truth through robo-polls when you hit the landing page for football transfer news. Have you heard of the like? Yes, click. That's clearly what's happened. I shouldn't say clearly. I would, I would, I'd, I'd probably think that's what has happened. Uh, this is not, however, a laughing matter. I want to say something else about this because I feel it's really important. The BBC and BBC Verify are not the arbiter of what is the news, nor who legitimate sources of information are. And that's because they have a clear commercial interest in demonstrating that they are a better source of news than other outlets, particularly those on new media like us here at Navarro Media. Secondly, it's important to remember that with fragmenting audiences, the BBC has to justify its worth to the government. After all, that is their revenue model. One way of doing that is presenting a problem, namely conspiracy theories and fake news, and presenting an answer, which just so happens to be the BBC. Now, I quite like BBC Radio 4, and I believe in public service broadcasting, but this increasingly feels like a campaign more than journalism. Fake news and bad actors are everywhere, so fund us. That applies to a certain liberal left paper too, but let's not go there for now. I might ruffle one too many feathers. 
Before we move on to the next story, a quick reminder that this show, like all of Navarra Media, is powered by you, our viewers. We wouldn't exist without you, so thank you for supporting our work. And if you're new here, and if you want to help an independent, truthful media grow, you can by donating one hour's wage a month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com slash support. That link is in the description box below. Next story. Should Jacob Rees-Mogg be allowed to present the news? He's just one of a number of MPs who currently host current affairs or phone-in shows in the media. But now the regulator Ofcom has decided to look into what the public think about that. Posting on social media, Ofcom announced this. Viewers and listeners are at the center of what we do to ensure our broadcasting rules remain relevant and effective. It's important for us to understand firsthand what people think and feel about the TV and radio content they consume and how perspectives might change over time. The rules around politicians presenting programs were first introduced in 2005, and given the rise in the number of current affairs programs presented by sitting politicians and recent public interest in this issue, we are conducting research to gorge current audience attitudes towards these programs. So what are the current rules when it comes to politicians presenting the news? This is from the regulator's website. No politician may be used as a newsreader, interviewer, or reporter in any news programs unless, exceptionally, it is editorially justified. In that case, the political allegiance of that person must be made clear to the audience. Politicians are allowed to present current affairs programs, such as audience phone-ins, but they must make sure a range of views are reflected in their program. During an election period, political candidates or people representing organizations taking part in a referendum must not present any TV or radio program. This includes programs that have no discussion of politics or current affairs. But what exactly is the difference between a news program and a current affairs program? And what difference does it make to a viewer whether the show that's being fronted by a politician is news or current affairs? Often they won't know the difference. That seems to be what Ofcom wants to find out here. But I want to look at how some parts of the media have framed this story. This is the opening line of the BBC's report on the proposed survey. Ofcom has said it is conducting research into public attitudes towards current affairs programs hosted by politicians. Currently sitting in former MPs such as Nadine Dorries, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Esther McVeigh and Philip Davies host programs on GB News and Talk TV. Until now, they have been allowed to do so as such programs are classed as current affairs rather than news. Those are all Tory MPs presenting on right-wing channels. Meanwhile, speaking to The Times, former head of editorial policy at the BBC, Richard Eyre, said this, There's a good argument for a range of presenters to come from across the political spectrum, but it's hard to see how Ofcom can justify a relentless stream of news-related programmes coming solely from the right of the Tory party. The Independent was even more explicit. Ofcom to gauge public opinion on politicians presenting TV and radio programs. And here's the key bit. Three sitting Conservative MPs currently have their own segments on the GB News TV channel. Now, I think it's interesting to say the least that these outlets are focusing on right-wing networks using politicians to host shows. That's because broadcasters more acceptable to liberal sensibilities have been doing this for years. One is LBC, who practically invented the format. Here's a particularly grim example where sitting MP David Lammy is interviewing chair of the Jewish labor movement, Mike Katz, about whether or not it was right for Keir Starmer, Lammy's boss, remember, to block Jeremy Corbyn from running as a Labour candidate in the next election. How much credit should go to Keir Starmer, who said that he would grip this right from the moment he took over? And what do you think about his decision 
yesterday to say, look, Jeremy Corbyn uh, will not be returning to the Labour fold? Well, <clears throat> firstly, I think it's, you know, it's uh, a lot of the mechanical things that we as the JLM were involved in helping the party implement. That wasn't no. That that was rightly down to down to the David Evans Labour Party General Secretary, the National Executive Committee, the the, mechanic, the mechanics of the party. But it never would have happened without Keir's leadership, as I say from the get go. And I want to be very very clear about that. How much credit must go to my boss who I have to answer to every day? I, I think that's strange, but apparently that's not enough to justify being mentioned in the BBC or the Times. LBC hasn't only given presenting jobs to centrist MPs. Nigel Farage was given a slot while an MEP. Jacob Rees-Mogg also got one while being an MP, but it definitely has a preference for Liberals. In 2019, LBC had five Remain supporting guests as guest hosts in a single week. David Lammy, Emily Thornbury, Tom Watson, Anna Soombury and Jess Phillips all pitched up to host shows. Big up the EU and accept Thornbury bash the Labour leadership. Remember, that was in a year when we had a general election. And did we hear a peep from Ofcom or the rest of the media when that happened? Because I certainly don't remember that. Michael, I know my views on this might be somewhat different to our audience, but I have watched this with exasperation, in fact, over the last 10 to 15 years, this growth of politicians presenting shows. And it starts on LBC, and it infuriated me right back then. I think it shouldn't happen. I spoke to BBC Radio 4 last night saying precisely that. We need a limit between politicians and journalists. And yet Ofcom only cares now. Why is that? I do think there is something specific about GB News when it comes to sort of the, the media ecosystem, which is that it is more explicitly political than a lot of the other channels which exist. I mean, over the Corbyn years, what do we talk about a lot? That there were there are sort of two wings of, of politics which are basically excluded from sensible discourse. So the our, our end of the left and then the more Brexity right, which for a long period of time when it comes to sort of mainstream political programming were, you know, somewhat ignored. I think I think both both groups there can can claim that to some degree. What GB News is somewhat different though is that I mean you are just seeing a very specific section of the political spectrum over and over and over and over and over again. And I can see why. So, so I think you could argue that GB News sort of feeds into a kind of polarization that you see in the United States that LBC hasn't, for example. So if you have LBC on all day, you will hear, you won't hear a Corbynite, right? So, so it's, it's missing one section of the political spectrum, which I think is very important and a huge oversight and one of the reasons why political journalism was so terrible between 2015 and, and, and 2019 and still is to this day. But GB News, if you watch GB News all day, you just get the perspective from a very, very specific sliver of the political spectrum. Even if it's not less truthful than LBC, which is biased in its own way, I do think that to the body politic, there there are risks which are specific to having a mainstream show which you can watch all day, all day, all day, all day, and never hear a different perspective. If it's if it's being streamed from 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 TV, obviously YouTube channels is completely different. I do think there was some value to the idea that Ofcom meant that all channels on on the radio or TV would have to pay some respect to this idea that you have to speak to different wings of the political spectrum. I don't think GB News really does do that. I mean, they have like Gloria Del Piero on on, on one day or whatever, but it, it's very specific what their schedule means. You know, it's Nigel Farage, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Dan Wooten. If you watch that every day, you are getting a very specific set of news, which are quite different from everyone else. And you can see how that does go to a sort of Fox News American polarization where we're all kind of living on different planets situation. So I can kind of see where they're coming from. I, I see what you're saying. You know, LBC were clearly doing it, but I do think LBC 
I'm not even sure you can say it has a liberal bias. I mean, it's got Nick Ferrari in the morning, who's a proper right-wing populist. Then you've got James O'Brien, who's like an aggressive centrist. Ian Dale used to be a conservative MP. It does seem to me, other than excluding the left, to be a reasonably balanced sort of distribution of, of political opinions. So I don't know, maybe you, maybe you disagree. Well, actually, I do disagree, yeah, because from, for me, LBC encapsulates something really interesting. So people, when they talk about the centre, you need the centre, people think, oh, it's somewhere between the left and the right. And of course, that's where most people are, right? But the reality is actually what they mean is neither the left or the right. The centre is merely a reflection of elite interests. Because let's be real, most of the electorate is to the right of the Conservatives on crime, for instance, or asylum policy. And most of the electorate is to the left of the Labour Party when it comes to public ownership of things like energy, rail, mail and water. So the centre, you'd think, would be a combination of these things. I don't agree with big parts of that. And yet the centre is none of these things. It's the status, it's just status quo politics. So I, I don't think I quite buy that, Michael. I think LBC does have a, a very clear ideological inclination, which is broadly more of the same. And I think they entertained Farage until things got out of hand with Brexit. And, and particularly, I think, after 2018, where the Brexit party was coming to the fore, and this was becoming a really serious political issue with a hard Brexit, it was dropped. So I think as, as long as it's a bit of fun, same, of course, with um, that awful woman, I won't remember her, I won't remember her name, nor should I want to remember it, from uh, The Sun. She was Katie dropped Hopkins. from there too. Pardon? Katie Hopkins. Katie Hopkins. Yeah, she was dropped. I mean, but that was because she wasn't really significant. But you look at the, the, the political inclinations of the outlet, also its, its reporters, they come from a certain part of the political spectrum. But what I would say, Michael, is... I remember I was watching that in February 2019 when you had five guest MPs all support Remain. I was shocked, Michael. I was shocked because we had, in a few months from that, we had local elections, we had European elections that May, this is in February, in three months' time. And it, it looked, I was like, this is a campaign. This isn't journalism, right? It's one thing to have a roster of people turning up, they all think the same thing, but to invite five MPs and them all support Remain when you've got European elections in three months, so that wasn't quite clear at that point if they were definitely going to happen, and local elections in three months, my jaw dropped. And when I mentioned that kind of thing, people go, what the hell are you talking about? Don't be so stupid. And now apparently Ofcom's investigating the exact same thing. Yes, I think the extent of it's more obvious, but on the principle, I, I don't think it's anything new. Um, and on the BBC, you know, Nick Robinson said, well, if, if this is allowed to happen, I don't know the rules for the last 20, 30 years. The person, you said Fox style news, Michael, the person who I think brought this, this style of comment journalism, comment slash news journalism to broadcast in this country was Andrew Neil, right? BBC this week, he would do piece to cameras very much like you get on GB News already. Okay, He was doing that while he was chairman of The Spectator. He was doing that having had his first ever job at the Conservative Party, having worked for Rupert Murdoch at the Sunday Times, having helped Rupert Murdoch in founding Fox News. He went over to the US for six months in the 1990s. Not many people know that. So when people say, oh, the BBC's there to stop Fox-style opinion broadcast, they helped innovate it in this country. So I, I'm not quite sure. Michael, am I being unfair there to Andrew Neil? Andrew Neil isn't Dan Wharton for a start, but you, I've worked also, with him. I think also Andrew Andrew Neil was an hour a week, and you also had Andrew Marr, for example, who I think clearly votes Labour, right? So, so I do think you you do get presented with a broader spectrum of politics on the BBC than you do on GB News. Now, GB News I think is less censorious than the BBC when it comes to like you're talking about sort of like left wing economics, but I don't think they are. Yeah. I think if you're looking at this, you know, the, the political compass, let's say. I do think GB News is quite unique in being something which is 
put out on mainstream channels and is sort of caters to a very, very specific portion of that that political compass. And I think that LBC, you're talking about these these MPs, but you had Nick Ferrari, who was a Brexiteer in the morning. I think he was. I mean, he, he, he comes across as that. And I mean, was, was Ian Dale a Brexiteer in the evening? Quite possibly. I, I just think you've got a, a broader section of that segment. Now, as we always say, there is a there's a big proportion of the political compass which is blocked from all of these things, which is the Corbynite left. And that's a massive problem. But I don't think that necessarily means that everything else should be blurred into being much of a muchness. I mean, if we're being sort of consequentialist as well, I just am quite worried about sort of British politics looking more like American politics because I do think it is a bit scary. I think on the principle, it's not new. I agree with you about the extent, Michael, but on the principle, this has been happening for so long. Nobody cared. Next and final story. Nadine Dorries is a Tory MP, although you might not have known that since she's been absent from the House of Commons for months. According to Hansard, the last time she spoke in Parliament was July last year. Instead, she's been busy burnishing her new career as a presenter on Talk TV. Last week, though, she suddenly announced she was resigning from the Commons. Was it because she detected a conflict of interest between being an elected legislator while drawing a salary from Rupert Murdoch? How noble. Or did she maybe feel a twinge of guilt about getting paid taxpayer cash for a job she wasn't really doing anymore? No. It's because she wasn't given the title Baroness and a cushy seat in the House of Lords. The story begins in September last year when Liz Truss became Prime Minister. Dorries, queen of the Johnson loyalists, quit her cabinet positions, supposedly because Johnson would give her a peerage. But things didn't go as planned. When Downing Street published Johnson's resignation honours list last week, Dorries, as well as seven other proposed peers, wasn't on it. So what happened? Last night, she gave an exclusive interview to her talk TV colleague Piers Morgan, where Nadine Dorries laid out her theory. In this clip, you'll hear her refer to the House of Lords Appointments Commission, or HOLAC, the independent body that scrutinises nominees for peerages. This list goes into number 10. Number 10 hand it over to HOLAC. HOLAC do the vetting, that's police checks and HMRC checks. Then they hand that list back to number 10. Number 10 then hand that list over to the king. So what happened was, HOLAC said to number 10, this MP needs to make a public announcement that she will stand down within six months of being put back to you on this list. Nobody from number 10 communicated that to me. Boris found out about this and had a meeting with Rishi last week. Six months had elapsed since the vetting had been done. Why Downing Street waited six months, I've no idea. Six months elapsed. Boris said to, to Rishi Shunak, you just need to ask for the re-vetting, which would take a matter of days. Rishi used very weasel words he said to Boris Johnson, and that's, that's the only thing Boris asked him to do, he said to Boris, whatever list Holak sent back to me, I will sign off. Boris left that meeting with the impression that James Forsyth, who is Sunak's political secretary, was going to ask for the revetting for the list to come forward, and then Rishi would sign it off. But of course, Rishi was using those words because he knew a situation had been engineered, i.e. the information Holak had given had not been not being communicated to me, and therefore my name would not be on the list because I hadn't done what Holak asked number 10 to ask me to do because nobody had asked me to do it. Holak have let it be known that they did not support some of the people put so forward. So they couldn't because they couldn't support the people who'd been put forward because we hadn't done 
what had been asked of But that's the only done. reason that they wouldn't yeah, support it. Who, but, it wasn't a failure know. of any of the vetting. No, 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 no absolutely not, no. Right, so who and do you... there were six people on this So this list. sounds like a sort of murder mystery plot that you'd have at a friend's dinner party. Who, who's the murderer here? Who has stopped you, Nadine Doris, from joining the House of Lords, do you believe? The Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak. We don't know what really happened. After all, Doris might be right. There's a first time for everything. But it is a bit weird. And that's because as far back as November last year, it was reported that there were going to be issues with Johnson nominating sitting MPs, just like Nadine Dorries, for peerages. Back then, the National reported this. The move has sparked controversy in Whitehall as MPs cannot also sit in the House of Lords. In order to accept their peerages, the four Tories would need to resign their seats in the Commons, therefore triggering by-elections. However, Johnson is said to have asked the MPs nominated for peerages to delay taking them up so the Tories do not have to fight by-elections. At the time in the House of Lords, Conservative peer and Cabinet Office Minister Lucy Neville-Rolfe said this, It is a common law principle that members of the House of Lords cannot sit as MPs and as such would need to stand down from the House of Commons. The government are aware that there is some precedent for individuals delaying taking up their seats, but this is a limited and largely related to their personal circumstances. It's also worth pointing out that there were a lot of people unhappy with the idea of Dorries getting a seat in the Lords for a different reason. In September last year, Deadline reports that SNP MP John Nicholson, who sits on the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, was seeking to block a peerage for Dorries. That's after he accused her of misleading Parliament over these remarks in a committee hearing. One of my favourite Channel 4 programmes is Tower Block of Commons. I think we've chatted about it before. You were on it as a young MP oh, yes. in the South Acton <laughs> estate, being sent to see how the other half lived. Well, I'm just curious. But then I discovered later they were actually actors. Oh, were they? <laughs> I did not know. The MPs or the... <laughs> no, 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 the, the people in. So I did Channel 4 production, actually. Really? And, yes, yeah, right? and so the parents of some of the people, of the boys in that programme, actually came here to have lunch with me and contacted me to tell me, actually, they were in acting school and that they weren't really living in a flat and they weren't real... Um, I had life tomorrow. Yeah, they were actually oh. And even... Um, if you remember, there's a pharmacist or somebody that I went to see who prepared food. She was also um, paid in an actress as well. It's important to remember that Doris was culture secretary during that hearing and also busy trying to privatise Channel 4. An investigation into Doris' remarks then took place with the committee reporting this after she resigned from her cabinet post. We did not find either Dory's original claims or the clarifications to be credible and have seen no corroboration of her claim that Channel 4 and Love Productions <laughs> used actors in a reality television show. In contrast, the detailed investigation carried out by Channel 4 gives us confidence that her claims are groundless. We are concerned that Miss Dory's appears to have taken an opportunity under the protection of privilege to traduce the reputation of Channel 4. Had Miss Dory's remained Secretary of State driving a policy of selling the channel, we may have sought a referral to the privilege committee. Interesting. But let's get back to that interview from last night. Doris went on to explain why, according to her, Sunak blocked her peerage. Number 10, I know why they did this. They did this because they wanted to avoid a by-election. If they'd worked with me, we could have had this by-election at a time which was suitable to them, maybe after the autumn statements come out when hopefully there'll be some good news. We could have worked together, but instead... Did, did Rishi Sunak me, lie to Boris? Put up a wall of silence okay, I get it. But did, and stopped it happening. Did Boris lie 
did Rishi Sunak lie to Boris Johnson in their meeting? So what I've said to you is you use sophistry, some very clever words. I will sign off whatever list Holak give to me, knowing full well that my name was not, and mine and other names were not on that list because they had engineered that those names were not on that list by not informing us the request made by Holak to number 10, informing us what we needed right. to do. Are you to be sure on the list. Boris Johnson didn't take you off that list? Uh, uh, 100%. It wouldn't be the first time he's, uh, what, he's no. stiff people. No, I, d well, I don't think that's true. Well, it is true. Well, I, d I don't believe it is. My, I can only speak as my experience of Boris Johnson, those I know, and it's it's a very positive experience. You're certain that he I wouldn't have taken you off the list? Absolutely certain. I think there's a simpler explanation here, in fact. As usual, Johnson tried to bend the rules against giving peerages to sitting MPs by trying to get a special deferral for the MPs he'd nominated. And someone decided that wasn't possible. He was trying to bend the rules a little bit too much. So those nominations didn't go through. It's not against Nadine Dorries as some kind of conspiracy. It's just a boring story about procedure and a former prime minister who doesn't think the rules apply to him. Nothing new there. But Doris drew a different moral from the saga. How upset are you at now not getting this honour you assumed you were going to get? Not joining the House of Lords, not being Baroness at the end of all this? Do you know what? I'm brokenhearted, not just for me, but for everybody who comes from a background like mine, who in today's world don't have the ability to climb ladders that they used to have years ago, who, who struggle to aspire because... They feel that it just isn't worth being aspirational. It isn't worth working hard because they see others from different backgrounds who take the spoils. And it kind of breaks my heart because that, that's what this story is. So there's an individual who's been a sitting MP for 18 years. 13 of them have been with the party of government. And three of them have been including her as a, as a minister of some kind. She's had ministerial posts. Not to mention someone who consistently voted in favour of austerity. And also someone who backed Liz Trust for Prime Minister, only for her to put the economy in the bin and set it on fire. That's who you see there, pretending to feel sorry for people who can no longer climb the ladders her party pulled away from them. Ridiculous. Uh, one of the most insane pieces of TV I've seen in 2023. Michael, Nadine Dorries is talking about aspiration and uh, meritocracy, and yet she's talking in truth about an unelected second chamber where people are chosen on grace and favour and whether or not they can uh, climb a slippery pole. It's, it's the complete opposite of meritocracy, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, she also went on to sort of say how Boris Johnson was actually, you know, someone who'd pulled himself up by the bootstraps uh, Piers Morgan pointed out he went to Eton. She said, on a scholarship, on a scholarship. Um, so she doesn't strike me as someone who's being uh, particularly genuine um, here. I have to say, I don't, I don't find her account completely implausible, but I suppose it is undermined by the fact that, yeah, I hadn't seen that. That um, well, it seems like a lie, which she told to the, the culture committee. I mean, that seems pretty significant. And then to say that Boris Johnson is not the kind of guy that stiffs people over, I mean, this is not someone who is speaking with much credibility. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy thing to say about Boris. You might think he's a bit of a laugh, but he definitely stitches people up on the regular. And Michael, thanks so much for joining me this evening. A pleasure as always. You make my job so much easier. We should do this more often. And thanks everyone for tuning in. The show is back here tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. A good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.